because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. It's been a while since I've been your host. I am joined today, as usual, by your more frequent lately hosts, Don Watkins and Stefan Hanna. Hey, guys. Hey, Alex. Hey, Alex. So I've looked at the stories you guys have prepared, including there's one uh, that involves me, and I have some thoughts on them, and I'm really, uh, really eager to get started. So, Don, why don't we do your first story? The Washington Post has a fascinating and frankly chilling article where it's drawing attention to something that I have not seen reported in the so-called mainstream media, which is that environmentalist ideas have made an appearance in two of the recent mass murder manifestos, the Christchurch murder of New Zealand and the El Paso gunman. And the article's called Two Mass Killings a World Apart Share a Common Theme Ecofascism. And this is by Joel Ackenbach. And according to the post, the alleged church church Christ I'm sorry, Christ Church shooter declared himself explicitly an ecofascist and railed about immigrants' birth rates. And in the El Paso shooter's uh, statement he bemoans water pollution, plastic waste, and an American consumer culture that is, quote, creating a massive burden for future generations. And the post goes on to note some various aspects of environmentalism that can feed mass murderers and that have been endorsed explicitly by larger groups of white nationalists. For example, it talks about environmentalist apocalypticism and overpopulation catastrophism and how these can be extremely appealing as rationalizations for mass murder. So the Post says, quote, conservationists have a long history of wrestling with questions about immigration and population growth. Some of those on the environmental left have seen the explosion in human population as a primary driver of the environmental crisis. This argument has been adopted by racists. And it goes on to give an example from the El Paso shooter where he says, if we can get rid of enough people, then our way of life can become more sustainable. Now, the article notes that environmentalists have definitely tried to distance themselves from these killers and from white nationalists more generally, though the Post does say this, a refrain among environmentalists is that if anti-immigrant groups are genuinely concerned about degradation in the natural world, they're targeting the wrong people. Climate change hasn't been driven by poor people struggling to get by. The activities of wealthy nations have been the main historical source of greenhouse gas emissions, the depletion of natural resources, and the destruction of habitats. Now, I do want to stress that the Post is saying that anti-immigrant groups concerned with degradation of the natural world are targeting the wrong people, not that, as I think could be easy to uh, read in this article, that anti-immigrant mass murderers are targeting the wrong people. But actually, there's no real logical reason that somebody accepting the environmentalist ideology should not endorse mass shootings so long as they do target the right people. That is, if you have an anti-human goal, like you've eliminated any rational basis for opposing people who kill humans. And in fact, and I mean this seriously, policies that they advocate are essentially not that different from mass shootings, except that if followed, they would be deadly on a far greater scale. Yeah, well, I mean, here's a sobering fact, which is who has the lowest carbon footprint in the world? I mean, mass murderers. I mean, they're, they, they have made up for their footprint uh, many times over, and you know, they're preventing future children from coming into existence. And people can say, well, that's not what I mean by reducing my carbon footprint. But if if you have that as an out-of-context goal or a, a primary goal, which is often presented as, like, this is really what we should be aspiring to, then it's perfectly logical that people uh, think about, <laughs> they think these kinds of things uh, are necessary, particularly if they kind of fail politically. They think, well, I'm, I'm going to at least do something... Um, on my own part. And then the issue of racism is interesting because I, I regard the whole modern environmental movement as, as 
what I would call a human racist, does and it? It has a bias, it has an animus against the human race, which it regards as unnatural and it regards everything else as natural. So it thinks if an activity is done by humans, then it's it's by that fact bad. Now, if you are a human racist, then how do you distinguish, you know, sort of how do you prioritize which human groups you oppose the most? Well, it makes a lot of sense to oppose them by how good they are or how prolific they are at producing more humans. So in a sense, these are consistent human racists. Now they can say, well, yeah, you should shoot the rich people too, but they're they're correctly, I think, saying that, well, if you have more kids and then these more kids are going to aspire to have more prosperous lives involving more energy, which is going to mean more fossil fuels, then yeah, it um, it makes sense. So I'm really glad that this angle is being shown, although it's it's abominable that it hasn't been shown earlier and that this this should just be the mainstream discussion that we are we are raising people to be anti-human and to yeah, I mean to to believe that sort of mass human death or at least a, a you know a a mass uh sort of mass prevention of human reproduction is morally necessary. Well, if you believe that either mass death or mass prevented reproduction are morally necessary, then these guys are heroes. Stefan, what's your first story? This is about a recent paper published in Nature Communications. And the paper is named Discrepancy in Scientific Authority and Media Visibility of climate change scientists and contrarians by Peterson et al. And so this has been making the rounds and it's uh, viewed as sort of a blacklisting of people who don't tow the uh, climate catastrophe line. And so what it essentially does is it compiles two lists of people, one of uh, people who have uh, some media influence uh, and are also... Uh, speakers at the Heartland Climate Conference, uh, authors of the Non-Governmental International Panel on Climate Change Report, also published by the Heartland Institute, and people present on the um, DSMOG blog, which the authors regard as a long-standing effort to document climate disinformation efforts associated with num numerous contrarian institutions and individual actors, but which is really sort of a database of people who are not um, in line with the catastrophic climate narrative and uh, quite biased in its outlook on that. And uh, so first, the good news is uh, among these alleged contrarians and deniers, as the authors call these people, uh, Alex makes the list uh, in, the, in the first uh, third of the list, which is ranked by media influence. So congratulations to Alex uh, for having some influence on the debate. And the second list uh, they are comparing with the first one is compiled um, of scientists who publicize in climate change related fields and are the most highly cited and also have some media visibility. So examples would be Michael Mann and Kevin Trenbers, which are household names to people following the climate debate in the mainstream media. And so they, they are comparing these two and um, their visibility, how often they are quoted and invited on, on media outlets and so on. And uh, so the obvious narrative of this is, okay, so we have one list of people who don't have a lot of uh, scientific credentials, uh, but still have some media influence on the climate debate in the public realm. And then in juxtaposition to this, we have uh, some super top scientists who are cited all the time in scientific papers, and they have a lot of authority, as the authors call this, um, in the field, but they are not heard uh, remotely enough in comparison to their actual degrees and um, professional credentials. And uh, so let me just give you a quote from the article. So their conclusion is that indeed communication scholars have noted that in the case of climate change, 
such disproportionate visibility of or false balancing is likely to mislead public perception, suggesting falsely that within the scientific community, there's parity in the number of scientists who do and do not agree on the fundamental issues of anthropogenic climate, anthropogenic climate change. So this, this is sort of their conclusion or finding that there's a disproportionate amount of uh, um, non-catastrophic narrative in the, in the public eye. So this paper, in my um, professional judgment, is complete junk science. And I'll just give you a couple of points why that is. So first of all, they use vague terminology. So they, doesn't defi they don't define what a denier or, or a contrarian is. Um, they're sort of using these terms, uh, implying that everyone knows what is meant. So they, they don't even have a qualitative uh, definition of what would be a position of someone like Alex, who is in the contrarian list, and what is the actual position of someone like Michael Mann on the scientist list. Another thing is that they compare apples to oranges. So they make a list of publishing uh, scientists in a rather obscure field. So this is not uh, something very popular um, with people who, who are media figures often. So th this is like apples and oranges or as Judith Curry, uh, a climate scientist said, uh, comparing peanuts to elephants. And uh, it's, it's not really making two equal lists and then comparing the media visibility. So obviously, someone like um, Greta Thunberg would be more visible uh, than Kevin Tranbers, who is a climate scientist. But Greta Thunberg is not on the list of the uh, like pro-catastrophe list because she's not a scientist. So you're comparing two really different categories of people and obviously the people who are sort of more on the communication side and more on the politics side are more often on media outlets and they also make some kind of um, like comparison in the mainstream media but also in uh, new what they call new media like blogs and, and podcasts and so on so this obviously biases the outlook because people like people who don't agree with the catastrophic climate narrative often show up on a, on a greater number of podcasts that don't have a lot of reach. They don't have as much re reach as CNN or Fox News, but they are counted as media appearances. And then they have a couple of miscounts. So hit job articles are counted as uh, media mentions, which of course is not a good publicity for the people who, are, who get hit by these uh, attack articles. And uh, some are misidentified as quote-unquote contrarians when they are actually established scientists and contributors to the IPCC reports. Uh, some examples are Roger Pilke Jr., Roger Pilke Sr., Scott Denning, who's actually an alarmist type, but he ended up on the wrong side by this counting, uh, probably because he spoke at the Heartland Conference against the majority of the people visiting the Heartland con uh, Conference. So it's not a really good methodology here. And then they, of course, use a citation metric of the scientists, like how often uh, does your work get cited in other scientific work, which might or might not be a good measurement of the quality of your research. And of course, it's a false dichotomy overall. They say, well, there's one correct side and there's one wrong side, and there's no nuance in you know, people agreeing with the basic science of the IPCC and then disagreeing with what the policy prescription should be or what the impacts are and so on and so forth. So it's a, it's a overall, it's a complete junk science paper to me. Let me, let me jump in about you're calling it false dichotomy. It, it, so I, I come at it from, I mean, I come at the climate issue primarily from the perspective of, I mean, I have more expertise on energy, uh, than I do on climate. And and the reason I'm commenting on the issue is because the issue of, of uh, you know, our influence on the climate is completely uh, inextricably connected to the question of what sources of energy we use to power our civilization, or if we fail to use fossil fuels, the 
you know, it's failing to power our civilization, I believe. So just this, the whole question of what to do about rising CO2 levels is a completely interdisciplinary question that is uh, hugely an energy question. And so energy is fundamental to our whole standard of living because it's the fuel of all of the machines that allow us to live in this unprecedented way uh, and, and unprecedented way and also experiencing unprecedented progress, you know, which has really just been 200 years or so that we've had this rate of progress and this, you know, this progress of human flourishing. So it's just, it's just from a human perspective, it's just so obvious that you need to be eminently concerned with all of the questions about how cheap, plentiful, reliable, versatile will energy be in the world. And you know, some of the people on the list are people whose expertise is in energy. And they're saying, yeah, I don't think that the negative side effects of rising CO2 levels are anywhere near as significant as the negative uh, impacts of making energy more expensive, um, scarce, unreliable, uh, less versatile. So there's just no acknowledgement on this issue that energy is really important and that expertise in energy is very relevant. And I think I would like to see a real study done on the issue of renewable energy and to see how much distortion there is of people who are remotely fact-based versus people who are just making wild speculation. I mean, you would think it would kind of be the equivalent of... Um, if you had, you know, you had people just claiming, oh, I've got something better than silicon microchips and, you know, silicon microchips, that, that is the, the core technology for our whole uh, computational system that we have. And so if you just had cranks saying all the time, oh, well, I can do it with this and I can do it with that. And I have a, some green semiconductor technology, you'd say, well, if you pay too much attention to those people, you're really going to distort the reality, which is that silicon microchips are the foundation of modern uh, computation, and they've given us computation power on a scope and scale that was just completely unimaginable and that's completely unrivaled. And the same is basically true for fossil fuels or, or hydrocarbon energy. So it's there's just no, I mean, I think first and foremost, not first and foremost for this whole thing, because there are a lot of distortions, but just recognizing that energy is such a value and that expertise in that value is absolutely essential when considering the question of rising CO2 levels. Uh, Stephanie, Alex, you, yeah, one, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I wanted to emphasize, and maybe Stephanie, you were planning to get to it, but the, this is part of the press release. So the context is not that they just have this lousy report, but this is what Professor Peterson says. He says, and again, this is the press release that's going out promoting this article. It's time to stop giving these people visibility, which can easily can be easily spun into false authority by tracking the digital traces of specific individuals and vast troves of publicly available media data. We develop methods to hold people and media outlets accountable for their roles in the climate change denialist denialism movement, which has given rise to climate change misinformation at scale. This is really an active effort to come up with a list to that the media and others should use not to promote people like you and like the other people on the list. Yeah, so I mean, it's it's a very direct attack, and you can see with other things we've discussed that that there is you know among major media outlets, they are you know they're trying to develop policies that essentially, I mean, they think of it as how do we, you know, how do we properly acknowledge the climate crisis, but or climate emergency? And then really, how do we somehow get people to do the right thing from our perspective, which they just keep refusing to do? And so one thing is the Guardian had it as a, we're going to call it climate crisis or climate emergency, but you can see it as, yes, do not allow these people. And like, if you allow these deniers, you know, these people were on in a published paper, this was on the deniers list. And then as much authoritarianism as exists in this debate, that, that can be considered uh, decisive. So it is, it's really an attempt to, I mean, it's, it's an attempt to suppress uh, actual discussion, and you can see that in, in just the sloppiness of it 
it's very much we want our clique to be unopposed, not actually we want to help people um, make certain distinctions, which, you, you know, you could I could imagine a paper that gave that sort of classified people in a certain way that was useful to people. But this is this is not that. Stefan, did you have any other thoughts on this? Yeah, so I I slightly disagree with the categorization as a blacklist. Uh, and many people have called it a blacklisting, but I think like the sloppy nature of how they sorted people into the different buckets um, to me doesn't indicate a blacklisting of individuals uh, in like sort of a list of people who shouldn't be invited, but it's more like the establishment of a narrative like there's a correct narrative and everyone who falls out of this cannot be important enough to show up on media and, and actually needs to be suppressed. So I, I don't think it's a targeted list in that sense. But it's there's also um, an issue going on with this paper according... Uh, so it, it's it's an ethics alleged ethics violation going on and it might be retracted because of that because they uh, gathered personal data from the people and public publicized it with real names and not uh, nominalizes and this might be against the law and i think it's published in the uk and i wouldn't like to see that because i think this paper is important i think it should be uh you know accessible to the public uh, with all of its content and also the reactions by these alleged top scientists and the following should also be on display because we need to see this for what it is which is sort of a bullying tactic against people who don't toe the line and i think the the vague language and sloppiness is very intentional because you don't need to define what the actual correct position is and you don't need to argue about that you just say well you know there there are legitimate and illegitimate voices and we decide which one is legitimate and so this is sort of the the uh, method uh, employed here and I think it's it should be transparent, it should be widely shared, and people should read it for themselves. It's written in plain English. And uh, yeah, it, it should be in open daylight what's going on here. Got it. Don, what's your next story? In a past episode of Power Hour, we talked about how Texas has been shutting down coal plants and replacing them with mostly wind turbines. And that last summer, this led to people being quite worried about blackouts. And we also noted that wind apologists dismissed those concerns and certainly after were quite triumphant about, look, see, there was no problems. Well, early last week, wind power generation in the region plunged for three days straight while temperatures hovered around 100. And the electricity grid in Texas was under so much strain that Texas was the single most expensive place to buy power in the United States. Wholesale electric prices, for example, jumped up. This is a, 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 this is not a typo. Thirty-six thousand percent and reached as high as nine thousand dollars a megawatt hour, and averaging over six thousand five hundred dollars a megawatt hour over Texas, with like the lowest price being two hundred fifty dollars a megawatt hour. And just to give some context on what those numbers mean, at the same time. In surrounding areas, you saw a range from 17 cents a megawatt hour, and I think that was in Louisiana, uh, all the way up to about $61.95, I think, in the Chicago area. And so why were prices going so high? Well, it's because the supply of energy was so constrained in Texas, and that without those high energy prices, Texas would have had to resort to more aggressive energy deprivation measures in order to keep the lights on in Texas. And in fact, they actually did start to resort to some of those measures. So on Tuesday, the grid operator asked customers to voluntarily reduce their use of air conditioning, limit the amount of large appliances they were using, schedule pool pumps to run during off-peak times. And had things gotten any worse, Texas was ready to resort to telling businesses to shut down, which is called industrial demand response, which we've also talked about in the show, and ultimately resort to rotating outages. And so one of the things I want to stress from this story is that it's not like we face a choice between 
oh, you have these widespread blackouts that completely bring the state to a standstill or a grid to a standstill, and then every or everything else is just fine. That in order to avoid widespread blackouts, a grid overloaded with wind and solar, it has to resort to all sorts of painful measures from high prices to voluntary energy deprivation to industrial energy deprivation to rotating energy outages in order just to avoid a complete catastrophe. And one of the things I find really troubling is that these stories don't get a lot of attention because these are warning signals. And it allows wind and solar supporters to go on and say, hey, look, there weren't any widespread blackouts. The system's fine. But actually what we're seeing is that it's becoming super vulnerable, particularly in closed grids like in Texas that can't easily trade uh, buy electricity from neighbors. And so, I mean, the, the basic principle is that, you know, just because the patient didn't die doesn't mean that he was healthy. Well, and we should probably think of what terminology to use, because you mentioned, I think, industrial demand response. There are all these euphemisms that are designed to cover up the truth. Mm, I think the term blackout should somehow be used. I mean, it's sort of like an industrial blackout or a targeted blackout or something uh, like that. Yeah, I mean, if you just look at it... You know, if you just even take the last 10 years, certainly the last 20 years, just obviously the capability of producing electricity has dramatically declined. And you think about what a negative achievement uh, that is. I mean, both because electricity is so important, but also just what, I mean, it's not like we've learned less. It's not like we've unlearned how to produce electricity reliably. We know much more. And in fact, we have better ability to produce coal and gas more efficiently. So if anything, we should have higher reliability, uh, lower prices. But because of this insistence on wind, in particular in Texas, we have something that's degrading uh, dramatically in performance. And you're already having these mini blackouts and or, or industrial blackouts. And, you know, you can talk about it as, well, the patient hasn't died, but if you make a per, I mean, if you make a person like chronically ill, then you are, it is killing them in a certain way. I mean, everybody just, your life is measured in time. So you can think of it as you know, you're, you're losing time in which you can really live. And then I think it's even stronger. It's even stronger than that analogy because what's actually happening is people's productive ability is being throttled. I mean, you can, in a sense, their life ability, if you think about all the role of machines in their lives, but you just think about industrial, and this is their ability to produce different kinds of important uh, goods that people regard as crucial to their lives. And that means that they can't produce as many of them or that they are going to be more expensive or in some way they'll end up being lower quality. So you're just, you're throttling the productive ability uh, of a whole area of the country. And that's, that's going to have negative consequences throughout. So I'm glad that you are bringing this story to people's attention. And I think that this is something that could be really publicized a lot more and be good to think about what we can do to publicize it more. Stefan, what's your next story? I have another story about my home country, Germany. Uh, so in Germany, the onshore wind uh, capacity increase has been somewhat stagnating in the first half of 2019. So only 287 megawatts of capacity and a total of 86 new turbines have been added in the first half of the year, which is the lowest level since the year 2000 when the energy transition policy was implemented into law. And uh, so the net capacity after, you know, um, decreases from decommissioned wind turbines is even lower than that. Um, and so the, the main reason cited for the sort of uh, decrease in capacity growth uh, has been increasing resistance to new wind projects in the general population and also increasing regulations like uh, minimum distance setbacks from residential areas. And so I found this interesting because uh, right now we are supposed to be in a time of peak installation of wind and solar capacity. So the government is, uh, you know, having favor- favorable conditions and uh, 
guaranteed profits for, for the renewable energy capacity. And um, so allegedly wind and solar decrease in price all the time. And that's true for the solar cells and the wind turbines themselves. But as we've discussed in previous power hours, of course, the system costs that these uh, technologies impose on the power grid uh, increase with their share of um, generation uh, for several reasons, but uh, mainly the intermittency problem. And so we are seeing now a stagnation because of uh, the regulations and the resistance against these projects already at a relatively low share in Germany. So something like 30 to 35% of power generation comes from solar and wind combined now, uh, which is a lot, but it's not even the uh, level of Denmark, which produces over 40% or generates over 40% of its electricity from wind alone. Um, and we already see a stagnation. Uh, and this is, this is interesting in particular because in the near future, people fear a recession or at least a, a strong economic slowdown in, in Central Europe and Germany specifically. So the car manufacturers have already uh, built a very low amount of cars, similar to the 2008 financial crisis um, period. And so I regard this as another sign of the actual failure of energy transition policies. Um, so the power prices, as we've discussed before many times, went up instead of declining when solar and wind were added since 2000, massively so. Uh, the emission goals, goals, as timid as they are in Germany right now, um, will not be achieved very likely. So this will be all pain, all economic pain, no gain in sort of CO2 emission reductions. And the renewable energy industry, after decades of subsidies and favorable conditions, is unable to grow uh, sufficiently itself without massive government intervention and favors. And so I, I only see one possible way to achieve these emission reduction goals, and this is curtailing energy demand, which is making Germans poor. Um, so the government has decided we will force this, these technologies on the population and they don't work, they don't uh, reduce emissions sufficiently and they don't, um, they cannot grow exponentially as would be needed to catch up with fossil fuels. And so uh, that's a very, very bad outlook, especially considering that by the end of 2022, the remaining seven nuclear units will go offline in Germany by law. And solar and wind cannot even close that gap. And then, you know, end of the 2030s, if that will still be the plan by then, and I hope not, the coal uh, capacity will be completely shut down. So I, I don't see where, how solar and wind in Germany will even fill the gaps, let alone allow for some energy demand growth there. So this is a real catastrophe for an industrialized country. And you know, again, it's all all pain, but no real substantial gain. So what are you going to do about this? Are you going to flee Germany? I hope I'm not alone in my fight by then, because uh, so I think 20, the early 2020s will be a crucial political time, I think. So I don't know, maybe I will run for chancellor or, you know, have a, have a my own party running um We'll do something about it. We will try. We'll try to fight. And if, you know, everything falls apart, then I hope uh, on the other side of the Atlantic, you will have your immigration policies updated. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, yeah, we should really, you know, any, any, you know, this shouldn't actually be the policy, but I was just thinking, you know, it should, if, if people wrote a letter, you know, condemning, the anti-energy policies of their native country you know, should go to the front of the line in terms of uh, you're a, a real American. I mean, my, my view about how a lot of this stuff is going to happen is, is I think that certain com countries will be suckers and they'll really hurt themselves. And then at a certain point, the fad will be over. And then, and then, you know, other countries won't hurt themselves. And with the U.S., it's scary to think about because definitely with the 
Now, there are plenty of problems with Republicans, so that's that's no panacea at all. But the with the Democrats, I mean, you just have these completely of the ultimate what I'm calling sucker policies in terms of just let us, uh, you know, let us outlaw a huge amount of the energy sources that actually uh, are making us prosperous. And then let's just mandate things that don't work at all. And you're seeing, I mean, man, do much, much more than Germany. So do you do that many times over and expect a different result? And then, so if we do that, then you get a really bad result. And then the question is, and with a lot of those things, you can, you can just undercut yourself hugely in the long term. Now, I think that once enough countries do it, then there will just be the, and, and there will be clearly, even more clearly, I think certain countries who just don't follow these commitments because they're so clearly destructive, and then certain ones that do, and then they're suffering mightily. So I would like to prevent everyone from doing it, but I'm particularly concerned about the U.S. and us being positioned to be uh, the sucker on energy. For many reasons, it's worst from my perspective for us to be the sucker. One is that I'm here, uh, but another is just we're the place with proper mineral rights. So we're a place where you can really innovate in terms of things happening underground. So forbidding, you know, you can imagine like with fracking, you know, forbidding it in France is one thing, but forbidding in the U.S., that just stops innovation that will ultimately uh, positively affect everyone around the globe. Don, what's your next story? Axios, the publication that we love to hate, actually has a report acknowledging some of the problems with wind and solar. And so it notes that the costs associated with intermittent wind and solar are growing. And in particular, it's growing as the adoption of wind and solar, from our perspective, slowly grow. And in particular, it's citing a report from Wood McKenzie. This was part of a report that we talked about a few weeks ago in the show, noting that as wind and solar come to be adopted more on a grid, this not only has certain problems generated by the intermittency, but it has economic problems, major economic problems. And so they quote uh, Robert Whaley from McKenzie saying, not only are renewables causing intermittency issues, they can no longer recover costs in the power market. At the point of 100% saturation, he's referring to the model, not that anybody has actually had 100% saturation or could. He says in their model, at the point of 100% saturation, they're completely dependent on government policy or subsidy. So this is a little bit of a, a, a tricky concept to explain, so bear with me. And both of you, I encourage you to come step in and clarify any piece of this that you think hasn't come through. But the basic issue here is that you have a bunch of different energy producers selling power to the grid, right? And they're competing to sell power to the grid. And the way that they do that is by having the most low price power. And so what's determining the price that is paid for energy is the lowest cost producer who hasn't yet sold his energy. And that's in economics called the marginal producer. And so everybody's trying to sell their power to the grid and if they can't sell it, they don't make money. So they're willing to lower the price that they're asking down to their marginal cost. And the problem here is that the marginal costs of wind and solar power, once you set up a wind turbine or you know solar uh, panel is close to zero, which means that as they scale, that as they can meet more and more of the energy demand whenever they happen to be available, the price energy producers get will basically go to zero. And that's a problem even if you are a wind and solar producer, because even though your marginal costs for producing energy are basically zero, those aren't your only costs. You need to be able to recoup all of your investments and become profitable. And as you are making up more of the energy mix and driving down energy prices, you are putting yourself out of business. And it's even worse than that because you're also putting out of business all of the reliable energy producers who are necessary because you can't provide energy all the time. And so the McKenzie basically says that these markets can handle 40, 50% of wind and solar no problem. It's when you get past the 50% mark that it gets trickier and more nuanced. Now, 
I happen, I, I have skepticism about that. I haven't looked at their model, but it's a question of like, are, are they referring to an entire grid being 40 or 50% solar or wind? Are they talking about like a subpart that can still trade energy back and forth between other grids? But in any case, like nobody has really reckoned with this economic problem, let alone the more fundamental intermittency problem of wind and solar. Yeah, I think that's a, a pretty good explanation. I think the I've been thinking lately about these kinds of studies, though, because it's it's so weird in a certain sense. Because you can imagine, you know, somebody like if Wood McKenzie, not not to pick on them, uh, but you know, if they did a study about. I don't know, the phone market or something. And they said, well, you know, you could have just a totally new set of phones made of this kind of material and it would cost this much. And this. and how could you possibly know that? How could you possibly know when, when you're dealing with something um, that just hasn't been done before and that involves, you know, new, very speculative technologies, which if you're talking about solar and wind actually powering a country versus just being parasites on reliable sources, that is something that's new and unprecedented. Just how do you have any idea what that'll involve, what problems uh, will exist? And just on a common sense level, if we think, oh, the government estimates, you know, how much it's going to cost to put up a new building or even a private company does, you know, people are often wrong. But then suddenly when we're talking about the whole economy, people will just throw around numbers like, oh, well, this will cost $40 trillion. And is it worth $40 trillion? And and as if versus just having a category of, no, these things are completely, uh, you know, are, are completely um, imaginary and uncompetitive and we have no idea if they will ever be uh valuable so it's more to say about that but that's one thing that strikes me i have one complication to add to that story because um i've recently watched a presentation by uh, energy and climate blogger joe nova who had a interesting insight into the australian energy market or electricity market and so there it was a case that in these these auctions that determine the marginal producer they the all of the producers would actually get compensated the um the final price of the highest bidder you know so you have you get more and more and more uh, megawatt hours of electricity and the the last producer the highest uh, price producer that bids into the market to fulfill the demand then determines uh, the compensation for everyone. So if you know something like a gas pickup plant gets something like the Texas price of, of $9,000 per megawatt hour, then would, uh, everyone would get compensated like that. And so everyone in the uh, lower price uh, marginal producer realm, particularly wind and solar, had an interest in destroying all the middle cost um, coal and gas power plants because what would happen is you would get wind and solar as much as possible at marginal production cost of close to zero and then you every one of them would get compensated by uh, you know the marginal price of a high price gas pickup plant right so they would they would destroy all of the reliable capacity as sort of in the middle price realm and that would be very beneficial to them until, of course, a point where the grid collapses because all of these reliable producers are gone. And I, I think that that's what it happens in Australia a lot, uh, where, you know, reliable power producers get decommissioned, particularly coal plants. And then you have only some more expensive plants and solar and wind. And once the grid gets stressed, then you don't have Th a lot of reserve left. It's related to interesting feature of modern economic discussion, which is that in energy, at least, there seems to be almost no concern about the issue of competition. Whereas in other industries, you'll see people are concerned about, is there enough competition for X? Is there enough competition for Y? If there's not enough competition, are people, you know, will prices go up? Will people engage in different kinds of conspiracies? And it is, it's very important not to mandate competition, but to have uh, freedom of competition. And And one of the things that's important about freedom of competition is that that people do have certain kinds of short-term incentives to not be 
competitive. I mean, they have certain kinds of incentives to conspire with others to drive up prices. So if you think about certain, like take a, there are certain people who own coal plants where they are very eager for other coal plants to shut down because when there's a crisis, then those coal plants can just print money. And I know people involved in these, these kinds of transactions. And so from a, you know, from an individual and from a consumer perspective, you really want to make sure that all the different power producers are free to compete. But what you have is this perspective that, well, we collectively should somehow reduce the number of coal plants or reduce whatever else. And then not recognizing that, oh, wait, this is actually a strategy that the remaining plants uh, will love uh, because they, and, and you're showing here, they can, they can get paid premium prices that they wouldn't otherwise uh, be able to earn. So there should be a lot more concern about real conspiracy among producers to drive up uh, electricity costs and not just think that, not just think of it in terms of, well, all coal producers must be allied in a sense. Certain people would, if they could, would be happy to be the only coal producer and or somebody might want to to drive coal companies and or you know get utilities out of certain plants and I, mean, I know people who get utilities out of certain plants and then they buy the plants you know you can just buy these buy really good coal plants at fire sale prices right now so that's just a a, a really important dynamic of freedom of competition and you particularly when you have the whole utility monopolization of electricity. You need to be even more concerned about that. Okay, Stefan, one more story, but it'll have to be a quick one. Okay, so this is about planetary protection, um, or also uh, called uh, contamination fears of the moon. And so back in April of this year, Israeli moon mission Bereshit uh, crash-landed on the moon, and in the process, it spilled some microbes from Earth. And the microbes in question are tardigrades, which are water-dwelling, half-millimeter-sized microbes that feast most, mostly on plant cells and small invertebrates and were discovered first in the 18th century. And they are present on all continents of, the, of our planet. And um, they have been carried with that uh, space probe there. And so they're very sturdy. They can survive extreme conditions like um, short periods of extreme heat, very lengthy periods of extreme cold, the vacuum of uh, space, and so on. So they're very sturdy. They can get into a sort of hibernation state where they release all the body water and then sort of survive as a, as a dry piece of dust and then can get uh, revived by adding water. And so this raised the question um, of whether microbes have uh, survived this crash and might now be sort of living in some state on the moon. So, and there were voices of concern that said, okay, international agreements might be violated and so on, but it turns out that in these international agreements apply to weapons and other technology, but there are some guidelines that have been established to sort of prevent contamination of other worlds that we might explore. And so you can see this uh, analog, uh, in an analog case in this case of invasive species coming from one continent to the next and wiping out the ecology there. You know, Australia has suffered some of that. Um, and so this might be detrimental to studying other worlds uh, when there's a complex ecosystem present and we want to study them in sort of their natural state, right? So you can, you can see that there's some concern with that. But... I think there's a really a broader issue of um, what is present now in our society, and that is the no impact ideal that the green movement has established. And so they that's seen as it's simply wrong to alter things, and um, the even the moon as an empty dead desert place uh, should not be contaminated with any microbes. And so even people who said, okay, so previous space programs that landed on the moon or even even probes that landed on Mars contaminated, quote-unquote, these uh, um, celestial bodies. And uh, because that's inevitable. If, if you're starting a, a probe into space, some sturdy microbes like this would survive it. And, and it's very 
difficult to have zero microbes on your on your spaceship, right? And uh, so even people who acknowledge this say, well, we should step very cautiously in the future, right? And um, we are at risk of spilling uh, microbes on empty rocks like the moon. Uh, and I, I don't, I think that's very a very anti-human view because ultimately what we want to do is we want to explore space. We want to transform Mars and terraform Mars into a place where humans actually can live long term. That's our nature. We want to explore new things. We want to colonize new things and we want to change things to make them more habitable for human life. And this inevitably um, requires massive change, massive impact for the better and also, quote unquote, contaminating other worlds. And so as Robert Zubin, who is a former power guest and also the president of the Mars Society, uh, said, the goal is, quote, not to stop tardigrades from expanding into space. It is to stop humanity from expanding into space. If sending life to other worlds is defined as, quote unquote, contamination, then humans can't go. And I, I think this, is, it, this viewpoint collides with any pro-human ideal, because ultimately humans would be contaminants on other worlds. Yeah, it's a, it's a good kind of controlled experiment of how the viewpoint, of, of how the viewpoint applies in a situation where it's just you're sort of purely anti-human or pro-human. Now I see I'm looking at your stories, uh, other stories you could have potentially discussed. I see that CNN will host a climate debate, which I hadn't seen. So maybe we'll talk about that this week, or maybe I'll figure out a way to to go to that thing and uh, give some opinions, although it's September 4th. They may have speaking uh, around then. But uh, yeah, so thanks, guys, for the the good stories today. Uh, listeners, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email them to don at don at industrialprogress.net. Also, if you are looking for a speaker or if you're interested in our consulting services on messaging, you can just also email Don with speaking or consulting, don at industrialprogress.net. Um, make sure to get on the email list, which is alexepsteinlist.com. That's alexepsteinlist.com. Power Hour will be back next week. I may be uh, on it, but I'm at least trying to make every two weeks, and I'm hearing some good feedback about the times that I'm not here as well, so glad everyone is enjoying it. Okay, everyone, have a good week, and you'll hear from us soon. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour, the antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.